Hello, my name is John Roskam. I'm the Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. Welcome to this series of conversations between myself and former Prime Minister of Australia, Tony Abbott, about the Australian way of life. The Australian way of life that we are so fortunate to enjoy is currently being threatened. The ideas of a fair go, freedom of speech, commitment to private enterprise, being challenged. At the Institute of Public Affairs, we believe the benefits of the Australian way of life must and should be extended to all Australians. In this, the first of three conversations I have with Tony, we talk about the coronavirus health crisis. We discuss the impact of public policy experts on the response of governments. And we also examine the split between the attitude of the media and the rest of the country to how we work and how we stay in jobs. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Tony Abbott, welcome to the Institute of Public Affairs mm -hmm. for this conversation about the Australian way of life. I've got the lockdown stubble. You're looking fit and healthy. What have you been doing for the last two months? Look, uh, about the only thing we've been allowed to do is exercise. Uh, we've been given more freedom to exercise in New South Wales than you've been given here in Victoria, and I've been making the most of it. And one of the things I want to talk to you about is what is the lockdown and the government's reaction mm -hmm. revealed about us as Australians? Is there anything that has mm. surprised you? So at one level, I think there's been a great degree of national unity mm. and we've come together in a real crisis yeah. and we've understood yeah. what needs to be done. But on the other hand, personally, I've been disappointed that I don't think there's been a quality of sacrifice. Yeah. I think yeah. that this crisis has revealed the difference mm. between those who are part of the productive economy yes. and those who tell us how we should live our lives. Is there anything that struck you about, about this? Yeah, let, let's get to that in a second, John. But just before we do, uh, I'm very big on the need for accountability. Uh, now, an elected politician is accountable. Uh, you are accountable every day uh, to the media. You are accountable um, whenever Parliament sits uh, to the other side of politics, and you are accountable to the people every three or four years at an election. So every elected politician is accountable for his or her life. No expert is accountable to anyone other than uh, the vague concept of peer review, perhaps. Whatever that and, might be. <laughs> and, and look, uh, as a former health minister, uh, I have a great deal of respect for the medical profession. Uh, when I was the health minister, thinking about a potential pandemic back in the as Howard did, government yes. days, uh, I worked very closely with the then chief medical officer and the other experts. But in the end, uh, the experts can advise it's got to be the accountable politician who decides. Have you been surprised by how quickly politicians, not Look, just in Australia uh, but around the world, yeah. seem to have hid behind medical experts and the science? And, of course, when you talk about mm. the medicine or the science mm. or the evidence, it depends what scientist are you listening to. Are you listening to one from uh, America, from Sweden, yeah. from here? Did, did that surprise you in any way? Look, I, I frankly have been uh, a little dismayed at how deferential the politicians have been. 
the elected accountable politicians have been to unelectable, unaccountable experts, particularly given that expert opinion is invariably contentious. Uh, one expert says one thing, another expert says another thing. Uh, if you take the corona crisis as a classic instance, we had the Imperial College That's epidemiologists right. claiming that the United Kingdom could lose up to a half a million people. And then you had the Oxford University epidemiologists saying that, look, it's not nothing. It is serious, serious. but it might, it might not be all that much more serious than a severe flu season. Uh, some people were saying uh, uh, that the death rates uh, could be uh, up to 5%, a bit like the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, others were saying very early on that it was much more likely that the death rate would be uh, 0.3, 0.4%. What does this say about politicians and what the public expect of politicians? It was almost as if, from my perspective, mm. the public were happy mm. to cede democracy, yeah. accountability, transparency from the politicians. They yeah. were happy to give it up to the experts. When did we become enthralled to the experts? Well, this is a good question too, John. Now... Um, That's not the Australian way either, I would argue. <laughs> well, you know, a, 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 a lot of people look at the politicians in the parliament and all they see is the argument at question mm. time. And understandably enough, many people recoil from the combativeness of that and they just want the whole thing to be more civil more civilised, if you like, <laughs> more polite. Uh, can't we all agree? Uh, hence the call for a consensus, uh, hence the desire uh, to listen to the experts and just do what Be we're told. And just do what we're told. Yeah. Now, now, look, we do have to uh, take the experts seriously. Uh, we should, wherever we can, strive for unity but as anyone who's ever been in a tight situation knows, someone has got to make a call. Inevitably, there will be contention about every hard call. And you don't succeed by uh, splitting the difference uh, and taking a lowest common denominator approach. Uh, to the extent that anyone can succeed in this veil of tears, it's normally by making the best call he or she can uh, in the circumstances that you've got, uh, with the facts as you know them to hand, uh, and and let the outcome vindicate the decision. Uh, I mean, I know we're going off into a different topic now, but 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 I think this is a really important discussion about yeah. democracy. So yeah. we had um, the beginning of the crisis, yeah. and you had the uh, many sections of the media saying, at yeah. last, yeah. now we can hand politics yeah. back to the experts. Mm. We won't be democratic. Mm. We won't be mm. populist. We won't be mm. Trump-like. Let the experts, let the adults mm. in the room take charge. And for me, that's profoundly yeah. undemocratic it's, and very dangerous. The last thing we want to do is live in a doctocracy. Yeah. Uh, it should always be a democracy. Um, I found myself thinking many weeks ago... Uh, uh, re recalling the words of Clemenceau, I think it mm. was, who said, war is too important to be left to the generals. Well, if I may paraphrase him, pandemics are far too important to be left to the doctors. 
in the end, it is vital that the elected politicians <coughs> maintain uh, direction of events, uh, direction of policy. Uh, yes, take the doctors seriously. Uh, listen to all the epidemiologists, uh, not just to the ones that are, as it were, banging the panic drum. Listen to all of them. Make the best decision you can uh, and then get on with it. And look, if down the track it turns out that um, uh, things don't work out as you plan, sure, uh, revise the decision you made earlier. But in the end, it's got to be the elected, accountable politician in charge. And for me, that's one of the divisions I think we've seen between the uh, experts and, mm. and the Democrats and democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Another division mm. that has struck so mm. many people is that between the members of the productive economy, yeah, 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 the people yeah. who are losing their jobs, <coughs> the people who may come back to businesses that yeah. will never reopen, yeah. uh, and the public sector, yeah. sections of the media, mm. the tertiary sector, um, that have been telling the rest of Australia yeah. how to live without being directly impacted on it themselves. What, what does that say about Australia? One of the most grating phrases of this whole pandemic has been, uh, we're all in this together. Uh, because, if only. Because, frankly, we haven't been in it together. Uh, we have got a private sector uh, calamity yeah. happening. Uh, and again, much as I respect the professionalism of the public service, um, no public servant has lost his or her job. Uh, no public servant has had his or her pay cut. In fact, in some states, their pay has increased. been dramatically increased. Uh, in Victoria, I think politicians' pay has gone up. That's right. Uh, while um, there's been this uh, massive job shedding in the private sector and the people who've still got jobs have in many instances had a 20% pay cut. So, so, look, let's not please repeat this grating phrase that we're all in this together uh, because uh, what we are seeing out there at the moment is is a calamity for the private sector. Tony, as you know, the IPA situation is that there should be an equality of sacrifice in these difficult economic circumstances. Mm -hmm. An IPA commission poll said something like three quarters of Australians yeah. think there should be a 20% mm -hmm. pay reduction for politicians yeah. and senior public servants. Yeah. I know you probably can't comment on uh, mm. what the government can do at the moment, but you did something very similar mm. in... 2014. Do you want to talk about that and your thinking behind that? Okay, well, let's talk about the 20% pay cut and then we'll talk about the 2014 yeah. budget. Uh, I'm not normally a big fan of the New Zealand Prime Minister, but uh, as I understand it, uh, members of parliament and senior public servants in New Zealand have taken a 20% pay cut for six months. I certainly would like to think that all of the private sector workers in Australia who have taken a 20% pay cut... Or more, yes. Uh, ..will have their wages restored swiftly because I want us to be a high-wage country, not a low-wage country. Um, so so uh, I think uh, in this instance, following Jacinda Ardern uh, temporarily reducing the salaries of MPs and, say, public servants earning over $150,000 a year would be a sensible thing to do. Now, to get on to your further point, 
Um, and this is a more fundamental shift that's been going on for a long time. Um, we used to talk about the working class, the middle class. Uh, the these days, class. I think it's these days, I think it's 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 probably more meaningful to talk about the talking class and the doing class. Uh, now, the talking class, uh, public servants, uh, um, university academics. Um, uh, people who talk for a living, analysts, experts of one sort or another. Uh, uh, the numbers have increased, uh, the prestige has increased. The doing classes, uh, manufacturing workers, uh, tradespeople, um, um, a lot of the professionals, uh, uh, engineers, um, technicians and so on, their numbers have, in many instances, shrunk and their prestige has declined. I mean, the princes of the working class uh, used to be auto workers, steel workers. Uh, the boiler makers. Boiler makers. Who used to enter parliament. Exact, exact, exactly right. And, of course, the glory of, of the Labor Party in the old days was that uh, if you were uh, uh, a boiler maker or an engine driver, in the case of Ben Chifley, uh, you could, via the Labor Party, become Prime Minister. Um, as uh, Kim Beasley uh, famously or infamously, depending upon your perspective, said uh, back in, I think, the 1970s, when I entered Parliament, the Labor Party was the cream of the working class. As I leave Parliament, it becomes the dregs of the middle class. Now, interestingly, there have been further cultural shifts since then, and, and the middle class itself... As, as I as I think has tended to differentiate and I, I between think tended to the doers and the talkers, and um, just on that, when did talkers become disdainful of jobs? So d during this debate, we've had well, it's the economy versus lives. Well, no, it's lives and lives, and the idea yeah. that every worker doesn't have yeah. an essential job that some it, workers are more important yeah, than it, others. It's, when did they become so disconnected? Well, well, it's in the real world. I, well, this is a this is a a, a, a very fair point. Um, how did it happen? I suspect a part of it was when uh, families didn't want their kids to do a trade; they wanted their kids to go to university. Yeah. Now, I'm all in favour of kids going to university, but just at the moment, I suspect that uh, too many of our kids go to university. And not enough of our kids uh, go and uh, learn a trade. For instance, do we need more lawyers? No. Do we need more school teachers? No. Arguably, we need better school teachers, but we certainly don't need more. Uh, what we need is we need more sparkies, we need more plumbers, we need more mechanics, we need more welders. Uh, you go on to major construction sites and all too often a lot of the people working there now are uh, uh, short-term uh, workers from overseas. Now, again, I'm not against short-term workers from overseas. I think um, many of those short-term workers from overseas um, want to join our team and in the fullness of time become wonderful Australians. But, but nevertheless, no family should be in any way embarrassed if their son or daughter decides to become a hairdresser uh, rather than um, a school teacher but, and or decides to become 
a nurse rather than a doctor. And the private sector hasn't done, in recent years, a very good job at arguing mm. for the private sector, for economic freedom, and yeah. those supporting government have done a wonderful job at arguing yeah. for bigger government and, and higher taxes. One of the interesting shifts in recent times has been the way large business has uh, um, really... Uh, Vacated the field. Exact, exactly <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, public companies uh, have really lost their mojo, I, I think. Um, oh, no, I, I'd, I'd correct you. They've lost their mojo for some things. Yeah. They've gathered. They've gained their mojo for so, identity so, politics, for trendy popular causes, yeah. but not for wealth creation. <laughs> Look, uh, I couldn't help but notice uh, the enthusiasm of large public companies to take a position on same-sex marriage, for argument's sake. Uh, very few of them were prepared to take a position on, uh, um, you know, the need for a less regulated economy, uh, um, the need for. Um, more freedom and, and in even the marketplace. During, during this crisis, a number of business yeah. leaders, one or two, said we need to start to begin to get back to work. Yeah. They were followed by no one. Mm, I know, I know. Too many big public companies have basically become private sector bureaucracies. Right. And it's interesting that the really dynamic large companies still tend to be um, virtually family businesses, uh, news... Uh, Lynn Fox and, indiv Vizzy, and, and, and individuals uh, with, a, with, with a vision for the future. They're, they're, they're founder-led often uh, or they still have uh, large aspects of the family company about them. They've got a strong ethos, a strong culture. Uh, they haven't been taken over by a professional managerial class um, whose main... Loyalty seems to be to their pay packet. So, so talking about the professional managerial yeah. class, that leads us into the future coming yeah. out of this. Yeah. If we want to think about the future, yeah. let's go to where we were. What sort of country yeah. was Australia three months ago? Go, going into this, as we chart a way out, mm. what were the characteristics of the country three months ago? Well, what are the characteristics of, of Australia? Uh, I mean, we're prosperous, we're free, we're fair. Uh, the two things that I think most characterise Australia are this instinct for the fair go, but the corresponding instinct to have a go. And I keep saying, if you want to get a go, you've got to give a go. Uh, if you want to get a fair go, you've got to have a go. Now, I'm going to ask you about the second yeah, part in particular. Yeah. And, and Talk to me about the have a go. Do mm. we still have that? Red tape mm. is Australia's largest mm. industry. Small, Less small businesses are being started mm. than mm. ever before in our history. Mm. More people mm. are wanting to go into a public sector mm. that is growing. Mm. Do we still have that have a go culture that well, I think we once had? Well, I interestingly, John, I think the bushfires showed the have-a-go spirit. Um, in New South Wales, there were tens of thousands of volunteer yeah. firefighters out there. We raised tens of millions of dollars. We raised tens of millions of dollars uh, for the fire services, uh, for the victims, uh, for bushfire recovery and so on. Um, lots of people rallied to the stricken communities. Uh, we had volunteers going in at every level to try to help. 
So, so look, I, I, I think the have-a-go spirit is alive and well. It's just that it needs the right circumstances to come to the fore. And too often um, circumstances, particularly government, can conspire to crush it. And for me, that... Is government crushing it more? Well, for me, the dispiriting aspect of the current uh, crisis, the corona crisis, is that we aren't being told to go out and fight for our country. We're being told to stay at home. Uh, Don't uh, be active for your country. Be passive for your country. Now, I think that is a dispiriting position. I'm not saying that an element of it wasn't necessary, uh, but it's a fundamentally dispiriting uh, position to adopt. That, we are not by nature a passive that people. That dispiriting mm. view of how we participate, yeah. some would argue, has been adopted and accepted and embraced by such a large part mm. of the community. Mm. Se- 60 to 70% of Australians um, are not uncomfortable with aspects mm. of what has happened. Yeah, um, and, and look, I, I can understand... Uh, people watching the footage from Italy when their hospital system was melting down. I can certainly understand uh, the real fear that gripped large sections of our community uh, for a few weeks there from the middle of March on. But look, I always think we should take counsel of our hopes, at least as much of our fears. And and I, I, I don't want us to be a frightened and fearful people Uh, Sure, there are real threats. Um, If you're at sea in a storm, uh, that's a real threat. Um, If you're in front of a fire front, that's a real threat. Um, If the brakes fail in your car, that's a real problem. But we we have become pretty good uh, at scaring ourselves, at at over-scaring ourselves. We, We should face the future with courage. And ultimately, with confidence, uh, we should never allow ourselves to think that the situation is hopeless uh, and we're all doomed unless we take some drastic and largely destructive action. And, and that applies to many walks of life. Well, of course it does. I mean, the obvious, the obvious case in recent times is climate change. Now, um, nuclear annihilation was a real prospect... Uh, when the United States and the the old Soviet Union uh, were at loggerheads. Uh, It could become a real prospect again, uh, depending upon how things develop with China. But um, without wanting to uh, distract this discussion, um, climate change is not in the same league. Uh, The idea that the world is going to be fundamentally changed... Uh, by um, a difference of a couple of degrees in temperature over several decades, it, it just doesn't rate in terms of serious threats. And, and talking of climate change and mm. the political contours yeah. of, mm. of the um, community, um, you a little while ago gave some remarks to the International Democratic mm-hmm. Union mm-hmm. Uh, that were very significant Mm -hmm. and then your remarks were published in an article in The Australian and um, you made some really important points Mm. that I want to ask you about. Um, The first point um, you talked about was the fact that we're going to be giving up 
some of the things we've focused on. We we focused on uh, identity politics. We've understood that red tape has been too large a part mm-hmm. of our lives, and some of these things are now going to mm-hmm. go. Can you um, talk a little bit about this? You you said um, that we have suffered a big hit mm-hmm. to the economy. Mm-hmm. We've suffered long-lasting change, mm-hmm. and now we have to start to rebuild. A real crisis puts everything else into perspective. The corona crisis uh, uh, has not been nearly as severe in Australia as in other countries, but it was a real crisis. Uh, I don't want to yeah. minimise it, even though I think that uh, uh, the lockdown in response was, with the, with the wisdom of hindsight, probably too severe and certainly it's gone on for too long and in the face of the experience of something which can and does kill people something which hasn't killed anyone and which needn't kill anyone I think should take its proper perspective now the other thing about the corona crisis is um, it will lead to a massive hit on our prosperity, an absolutely massive hit on our prosperity, even if the economy bounces straight back uh, in the coming weeks and months, there will be a $200 billion plus uh, burden of debt will pay for. That, that will ultimately have to be paid for. So whatever way you look at it, Uh, there are going to be very serious long-term adverse economic consequences from this. And given this uh, unexpected element of impoverishment, uh, the last thing we should be doing (laughs) is is further policy-induced impoverishment um, in the name of something like reducing emissions. Now, um, obviously... I think we should rest as lightly as we can on the only planet that we've got. Uh, but the idea that we should further add to our costs, uh, further inhibit jobs, um, further increase our costs um, in an in a, in a extreme effort to reduce emissions, I think will look even crazier in the future than it did in the past. Do you think government will inevitably become bigger as a result of this? No, it shouldn't. It absolutely shouldn't. Uh, we should, as swiftly as possible, move uh, to end all the extra spending, to end all the additional restrictions, uh, and in so doing, uh, in, in moving back to normalcy, uh, we should try to make it a better normalcy in the recent future than it's been so in the recent past. The arguments of so, some we sh- so, so we should try to get some of the, I think, uh, the ideological um, anxieties, climate change, identity, uh, politics. identity politics, gender fluidity, all this kind of stuff. Let's see these things for what they were, uh, fads, essentially, uh, intellectual fads, uh, to put it at its kindest, and, and let's focus on what really matters, which is having a richer, freer, fairer and more successful society in the future than we've had in the recent and, past. And to come back to 
an earlier point that you made. So you don't mm. believe it's inevitable no. that government will get not bigger, that the public will expect more not, from government, that the public will trust public servants no, more? No, not, a, not at all. Now, This is I, an important now, point now, that I, you're I, making. I, I, I do think uh, that uh, people are waking up to the real nature of the Chinese yeah. communist regime and uh, even uh, highly orthodox establishment figures like Dennis Richardson are now saying that we need to increase our military spending beyond 2% up towards 3% of GDP. Uh, if that's Dennis's view, uh, I think uh, we have to take uh, increases in military spending very seriously. Uh, it's also become glaringly obvious uh, that we do need more self-sufficiency in some areas of manufacturing. Now, um, is that government will have government will have to take some action there. Is that tariffs? But that doesn't mean that uh, government will have to directly produce medicines, directly produce uh, uh, PPE, etc. Itself, uh, government should sensibly work with the private sector to ensure uh, that we are more resilient uh, in what might be described so how do as we how do, the how essentials do we, of modern life. How do we avoid the old tariff regime? Mm -hmm. How do we avoid putting up the drawbridge? Yeah. Well, again, I think it's got to be uh, much, more, much more sophisticated. What I would like to see us do is, if you like, an audit, uh, a very thorough audit of exactly what we can and can't do in this country and then we need to have a very thorough discussion of what we think we must be able to do in this country and what we think we can rely on others and which others for. Is that a new economic nationalism or is it something different? Well, again, I think it's simply... I mean, again, uh, the best way to produce things um, is invariably by maximising the use of the market. Uh, but not having the world's most expensive electricity, yeah. some of the world's most restrictive labour laws, ex 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 some of the world's most uh, extensive red tape. But, but we do still want to have some of the world's highest wages. That's right. Because we, want, social our, safety net. we want our people to be, to be well off. Uh, but if we want to stay well off, we've got to be smarter. Uh, than we necessarily have recently been. Smarter and, and just more savvy, if you like. Not just academic intelligence, but savvy, street-smart intelligence. So that's what we need. So, so there, there may be some things that we're perfectly happy to rely on the world for. There may be other things that we're only prepared to rely on our friends for. And there may be further things that we feel we need to rely on ourselves for. So I think these are, these are the sorts of conversations uh, that we need to have. Have politicians been honest with the public about this? So mm -hmm. for a long time we've heard there's actually a moral equivalence between China and, and the United States. A lot of people have argued, well, there's not one just might be an official ally, but there's not that big a difference. I think Australia is now understanding John, there is a difference. Just as in the old days, some people argued moral equivalence between the United States and the Soviet That's Union. Right. Plainly, there was right. no moral That's equivalence. Right. And, and look, um, I am pro 
China, but I am very not very much not pro the current Chinese government. And while as Prime Minister, I was more than happy to conclude a free trade agreement with China. Uh, yeah. I think, remarkably, China actually gave more than we did in that free trade agreement. Um, uh, our economy was already very open. Um, they actually opened theirs up somewhat to us. Uh, but the, the reality is that over the last five years, what have we seen from China? Uh, we've seen the militarisation of the South China Sea. We've seen bullying of its neighbours, uh, repression in Hong Kong, belligerence towards Taiwan. We've seen the internment of perhaps a million Ouija's. Uh, we've seen this grotesque social credit system, um, 1984 on steroids, if you like, uh, of kind of high-tech enforced conformism. Um, we've had President Xi declare himself uh, emperor for life. This is a different China. Uh, at least we understand the difference more clearly than perhaps we did five and years ago. And, 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 and that, I think, needs to inform our actions in the years ahead. And, and some of this reassessment mm. is going to involve Australia becoming more confident about itself. Uh -huh. It uh -huh. is going to involve... Australians understanding yeah. mm. things that we've spoken about, our culture, mm -hmm. our institutions, mm -hmm. our freedoms, yeah. 2,000 years of Western civilization mm. that has given us mm. a, a liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. As we draw to a, this conversation to a conclusion, how yeah. do we rediscover mm. some of that confidence? So um, it used to be the conversation that Australians and Australian governments mm. don't pick winners. In mm. fact, we've picked lots of winners. Mm. We've picked institutions that have mm. critiqued our culture. We've picked mm. an education curriculum mm. that has criticised our nation. Mm. How do we rebalance mm. some of this conversation towards mm. mainstream Australian values mm. and understand our successes also appreciate our weaknesses, mm, mm. but build confidence of what we are as a country. So we've got in the bookshelf Douglas Murray, yeah, the, the great yeah. British journalist who, of yeah. course, came to Australia, and he said, I've been mm. to very few countries that seem to not like themselves mm, mm. as much as Australia does. Mm, mm. How do we overcome that? Well, I'm not saying that you can just uh, uh, change the zeitgeist overnight, but, but if more of us are more truthful about our strengths as well as about our weaknesses, if more of us are more truthful about our opportunities uh, as well as just our perils, um, if more of us are more confident about our ability to meet challenges and beat them, well, I think we will be so much better off. I, I mean, I, I spent a bit of time as a youngster uh, playing rugby and ultimately coaching rugby teams, you only win if you have persuaded your team that they can win. Uh, you never win a sporting encounter by demoralising your own team. And too many people um, in leadership positions in our country have been busy demoralising us for too long, whether they're school teachers, 
uh, and university lecturers with the black armband view of history, uh, whether it's uh, uh, politicians of the left scaring us to death over climate change, um, whether it's, uh, I suppose, uh, politicians of the right who have sometimes succumbed to cultural despair. Uh, I think I think we just need uh, so much more of a can-do attitude. Now, it's not going to be easy. <laughs> Life is not easy, as one of my predecessors once said. <laughs> but it's livable if we have the right approach. Tony Abbott, thank you so much. Thanks, John.